Welcome to the Conscious Relationship and Coupling and Parenting Summit. It's me, Lucia Gabriela, your host and producer. And today we have an incredible couple, Philip and Paget. So let me just read you a little bit about them. Philip and Paget had been happily together for over 13 years. When they named their relationship Aftonia, which means abundant in Greek, they knew they were in for a wild ride. This path eventually led them to the birth of their son, Phoenix, and the journey of conscious parenting, and the many challenges that arise and the wisdom that comes forth. Philip also enjoys coaching people through his business, Exquisite Love Coaching, while Paget loved writing about parenting and relating. So we have the honor to introduce you today, Philip and Paget, into our summit. Thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. Amazing. I've been following you guys for a while and it's just amazing the journey and the vulnerability that you guys share about the parenting aspect of raising a conscious child and I'm really, really excited to learn from you guys, uh, your different perspective and how you're really doing this conscious parenting. But before we dive deep into there, we would like to know how do you guys really started into this journey of conscious parenting? Oh, wow. How did we start? Um, and with the birth of our son? <laughs> it starts with a baby, it comes out of the womb, and then we just don't have a choice anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, we very specifically chose to have a child, but I, um, I think there are lots of communication skills that we learned beforehand mm -hmm. that we thought would be helpful, and um, sometimes they are. <laughs> So I think that it begins with uh, kind of an individual journey. And then once you have a child, suddenly you realize that some of those tools work and some of them are totally inadequate. And then sometimes you're just making stuff up on the spot. Yeah. So. I would also add that, uh, you know, you could backtrack the journey to how we grew up. Because a mm -hmm. lot of our, a lot of the things that we bring forth as parents is, you know, a lot of it just originated from our own growth as children and seeing our, how our parents handled it. And hopefully they handled it in a way that was really effective and we're thinking, wow, this is great, so we're going to use that and maybe improve on it a little bit based on our own wisdom. And then also I think it's, yeah, definitely noticing how our parents raised us individually, sometimes wanting to do the same things and then sometimes unconsciously doing things and then <laughs> other moments of saying oh yeah this is how my parents did it and I don't want to do it that way right right either as an example of what to do or an example of what not to do thank you for sharing uh, and today's topic is about the eight tools for healthy conscious parenting and we're so truly honored and excited to learn uh, these tools from you guys today so so here we go um, so here we have uh, eight tools for healthy, conscious parenting that we have put together, and we are delighted to present them to you. Yeah, and and this uh, just to just to be clear, these are these are eight tools. These these are not the eight tools. These are not the only eight tools. Yeah. Uh, there's these are just eight tools that we find uh, have really made a difference for our child in the ways that we've raised him, mm -hmm. uh, or or at least. Or at least we believe that it will make a difference because mm -hmm. in some cases we haven't seen the return on investment, so to speak. Um, so yeah, so um, and I also want to add that uh, a lot of these tools originated from 
uh, Paget writing mm -hmm. uh, some blog posts about mm -hmm. about each of these topics. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that uh, that you have the floor, and I will follow you on this little <laughs> journey that we have. I mean, we've Great. been on this journey forever, mm -hmm. uh, well, for the last six years. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, uh, I really trust your your wisdom, and I will add to it. Uh, as definitely, I see it. definitely. All right. Okay. So who we are? Well, I mean, Philippe can tell you who he is. <laughs> um, but I am a parenting blogger. I am a writer. And um, I love writing articles about parenting and relationships. We have a beautiful six-year-old son named Phoenix who's super fun and amazing, except when he's not super fun and amazing. Um, and we're definitely very passionate about teaching our son different meta skills to become an amazing human being. And that's what we're going to present to you today. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, we've been married for 13 years. Uh, sorry, we've been together for 13 years. Mm -hmm. We're on, what, season 14? Yeah. If, if, yep, if yep. we were a TV show, we'd be on season 14. Yep. And we've been married for nine years. So, uh, yeah, we've been doing this for a little while. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. we we have a, we, we have what I feel is a, is a, 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 a very lucky way of relating where mm -hmm. we can both listen to each other but also coach each other in, in you know in around things that are difficult for each of us but at the same time this allows our son to kind of witness us in this space and and i would also um i'm not sure if i i would call it coaching because oh, okay. i think it's <laughs> i think that could be very a very tricky space but definitely we're willing to give each other um feedback mm. when appropriate True. um and also know when to be quiet because there's not always moments when it's appropriate to give feedback. Mm. So um, yep. we'll find a good balance of that. Yep. Yep. And on my end, um, I'm a love and relationship coach. Um, been <laughs> geeking out on relationships and intimacy and relationships and sensuality and sexuality and connection mm -hmm. uh, more recently. Uh, for And I've been doing this for many years. Um, and for me, it's there's nothing that brings me more joy than... Uh, then uh, engaging with someone, a client or mm -hmm. a friend or a family member uh, who's having some difficulty around how to engage with either other people mm -hmm. or with themselves or with the world. Um, there's nothing that brings me more joy than supporting them and making that journey a little bit easier. Mm. All right, so let's go into the eight tools. That sounds great. That All sounds right. great. All right, first tool, healthy kid sexuality. You know, we're jumping in. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I'll start with the very first one, and that's I think that um, kids' sexuality is not adult sexuality, and I think that sometimes people conflate those two things. They are very different, and um, for many reasons. But one is that uh, children's sexuality is not hormonally driven, and whereas an adult sexuality really can be. And so I think it's important to note places when. Um, like if my son is, our son is kind of playing with him, his penis or something, that it is pleasurable, but it doesn't have that same intense hormonal piece right behind it. It's like it's missing the primal, um, the, the primal um, agenda. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing is that there is an appropriate amount of exploration and play between kids of the same age. And there are, if you look in your state, you'll see that um, CPS has very specific guidelines about that. Mm -hmm. So like, a, you know, a five and a six-year-old kind of being curious about each other's bodies is mm -hmm. extremely normal. Like, quote, unquote, playing doctor, even though that could look like a lot of different things. It, definitely. I think mm -hmm. that the key around that is that 
um, exploring and being curious, if you look at the guidelines, is um, the, the one sort of guideline that really pops up is that kids are not simulating adult sexual behavior. And by that, I mean, if, you're, if your child is engaging in oral sex or um, simulating intercourse, then that would be something um, that's more unusual. And, uh, and to look more deeply into and kind of to ask, to ask more about. Yeah, like why is your child doing it? What are they witnessing? Um, mm -hmm. What's going on in there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, there are things that uh, that children will do that that is, a, that is a healthy expression of exploration of sexuality, mm -hmm. such as, ah, well, what does your part look like, mm -hmm. and what does it look like this? Yeah. And then uh, there can also be, and we, we're not going to go more deeply into it this time around, but there's a whole conversation around why does some why do some kids uh, why are some kids circumcised, why are some not? Right. And our son has certainly noticed he changes in the um, locker room for swimming lessons and mm -hmm. he's definitely seen other penises. Mm -hmm. And so we've um, talked about why they look different and, and other things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I would, um, to that point too, all of these, we teach our son uh, appropriate names for body parts. And so it's not that he's got like a dingle dangle and a wee wee, but he knows that he has a penis and testicles and scrotum that he has seen me naked before, that mm -hmm. I have a vulva, the difference between vulva and vagina and mm -hmm. anus. And, and so he actually knows the appropriate names and there's no shame around it. Mm -hmm. It just, that's what you call them. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there's plenty of times for nicknames and uh, <laughs> at this on. point, later on, you know, even now if he, if he were to address that. Yeah. But for us, it's, um, it's actually correct anatomical names. Yeah, so another thing that's important to, uh, to realize <laughs> is that it's very difficult to teach your, your child healthy sexuality if your relationship to sexuality is not healthy mm -hmm. or, if it, or, or if there's a lot of taboos that are present so that when you try to engage with it on a personal level, say with lovers or with your husband or wife or partner, uh, that if these taboos show up all the time, they will also show up with your child. Mm -hmm. And then your child will just sort of like absorb that information and that way of being around sexuality because that's what they have to base their their exploration on, mm -hmm. and so if you if you grow your sexual your relationship to sexuality into something that's more healthy, if you notice that there's a lot of taboos or there's trauma or there's there's a lot of difficulty in engaging with it, if you grow that into something more healthy, then your child will also grow with something more healthy. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of one of the other aspect is a consent has uh, has to be present. So. Yeah. Whether it's around, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, yeah. but whether there's, um, whether it's exploration in conversation with you, because they want to see your body parts, they want to know what they look like, or if they're exploring with other kids, uh, it's important that everybody, uh, everybody uh, is consenting to this. So mm -hmm. we're going to go into what that looks like in just a second. Yeah. All right. So this is consent. <laughs> yep. So um, consent means that everyone is happy with with what's going on yep. and i would also say that there is a kind of healthy and normal component to that mm -hmm. um that's also really important and that's what we were just talking about mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to body stuff we are really careful around like hugs and kisses and affection mm -hmm. and we actually model that to him and we request that all adults around him ask if he wants to be hugged and kissed 
because he's very affectionate. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes he doesn't want to be hugged or kissed. Yeah. And that's actually okay. And we've been doing this ever since he was able to say yes or no. Um, and so, and from that point on, we always asked him, like, do you want a kiss? Do you mm -hmm. want to be hugged? Do you want mm -hmm. to be picked up? Do you want to be, do you want to be tickled? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by doing this, we're showing him that, that his consent matters. Mm -hmm. So that when later on he's engaging with us and he's, he's touching us in ways that we don't want, we can actually say no or stop. Mm -hmm. And, and if he doesn't, we can actually turn around and say, well, when you say no or stop, do we stop? Mm -hmm. And he will know and trust that we do that. And we can request the same from him. So it's a mutual respecting uh, as we're teaching about consent. And I think the other piece of it too is that children, for some people, they require their children to be affectionate with family members. And that means that the child is actually overriding a no response. Mm -hmm. And in the future, it makes it harder for the kid to override that kind of response because you're basically training that child to be a yes to physical, something of a physical nature that they don't actually want to be a yes to. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, really important to us. I also want to add that um, <clears throat> per, that uh, most people see consent as permission. They think mm -hmm. consent is, can I touch you here? Can I do this? Can I do that? But really what the, 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 the most, uh, the, the permission is just a piece of it. When you add connection to this, mm -hmm. then, then there's a mutual willingness to do what's best for both people. Mm -hmm. And that's what to me is really true consent, is there's, there's a connection plus the willingness to check in. Is this okay with you or may I do this or may I do that? Mm -hmm. And if, you, if your child grows up with this day in and day out, mm -hmm. it will become second nature. They won't feel like, oh, I have to ask again. Mm -hmm. It will just become this thing that's normal, just like saying please or thank you. All right, and of course, there's so much more to say about consent. Um, but basically, if you model it and you use it with them and you respect them uh, around it, they will grow with that. But you have to embody that yourself, just like sexuality. So the um, the other the other piece I want to add was around tickling. So some adults feel very uncomfortable around kids, or they've learned to engage with kids by tickling because there's a, a seemingly positive response to that, right? You tickle, you get laughter, and you're like, oh, great, the kid likes me. But actually tickling um, promotes a physiological response, which means the child isn't actually a choice around that. And I know adults who have had really bad experiences as children actually being tickled, and mm -hmm. they found it very torturous. And so... Um, yeah, and I had nightmares about it, too, um, when I was a kid. Mm -hmm, totally. Uh, the other way the, uh, is if you're actually pretending to tickle, not actually touching the child, and then the child responds, and the child is... Um, it laughs, and that's an tickled. emotional response. <laughs> They're tickled by the pseudo-tickling, right? <laughs> um, and then we've noticed with our son that sometimes he actually requests to be tickled. Yeah. And that's a whole other thing, where it's like he wants it, and he wants that response. And then we'll tickle him and say, are you ready to, you know, you do want more? And then he can actually be in control of that. So there's a whole consent modeling that takes place. And I remember early, early on, I was playing with Phoenix. He was probably two or three, and I had a feather. And, and that was one of the early experiences of tickling where I show them the difference between slow and soft and fast and tickling. And and then I would ask him, well, which one do you want? And he would then he, he would he would try one, and then he would say stop, and I would stop, and then I would do, and then I'd say, what about the other? And he would say, okay, let's try the other, and I would do faster with the feather, and I would tickle, 
Um, and then he would laugh, and then he would say stop, and I would stop, and then we just kind of switch back and forth. And ever since we've done that, he's been able to actually request one of those two, slow, slow soft, and fast tickle. There's, of course, a million of variations around this. But this is, these are just the building blocks of consent, uh, the building blocks of experiences that show him that we want to engage with him in a way that feels good to him, and vice versa. We want the same from him. So that later on when he's a young adult and hormones start to rage in his body, that he'll still remember that, it's, uh, that it makes more sense to engage consensually than just follow the hormones. All right. Matching the energy of the room. So this is something he actually um, learned, a skill that he has been learning at school. And we think it's really, really wonderful. So that way, when he comes into a room, he actually needs to notice what's going on and, um, and go ahead and match that like physically, mm -hmm. but also pay attention to how people are emotionally. So, I mean, we've all had the experience of being perhaps at a quiet gathering and then somebody enters the room and they're really loud and boisterous and they just don't even seem to notice. It's incredibly disruptive. And so we've seen him on, um, like, even at BART, on the BART train, uh, he was there, he's being kind of loud. And I said, hey, Phoenix, just, you know, take a look around. And what do you see? How are people acting? And so he brought his energy down. And then when we went through a tunnel and things were really noisy, he got really loud. He said, mama, I'm just, I'm matching the energy. <laughs> and that was also the same thing. So he could absolutely be loud in that moment. That was totally appropriate. Yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, the, the, most parents will adopt a shaming model around this or a punitive model. If the child is not doing the right thing, they will say, they will, they'll punish them or they will shame them for it. They'll say, oh, you're always too loud or you're, or you're, you're too much. Or it's just a, there's just a, a, a lot of like trying to control the behavior rather than encouraging the child to, uh, to pay attention to his or her surroundings in order to, to be a better match for it. And to find out like, what is the right, what is the right time and the right place and the right people to engage in a certain way, whether it's around it's around loudness or around the the type of engagement, like whether it's playful or serious, and this is again are just building blocks uh, to build uh, awareness in the child. Mm -hmm. All right. Number four is on swearing and name calling, and that that is um, that's actually a conversation that Philippe and I have been in for quite a while around like, well, how do we feel about him swearing? How do we feel about us swearing around him? Mm -hmm. And um, one day Phoenix said, Mama, can I say a bad word? And I said, sure. And he said, you know, um, oh, that thing was like fucky pants and shitty brains. And I, <laughs> I it was totally hilarious. It didn't completely make sense. And then we had this a, a longer conversation, and one was around um, swearing versus swearing at, right? There's one thing to drop something large on your foot and say a swear word. It's a whole other thing to swear at a person. Mm -hmm. And Philippe and I have actually never sworn at each other, um, and we are or called each other any kind of name. Yeah. And so we're modeling for Phoenix what it means to use like an appropriate use of swear words yeah and sometimes you know i'll use the hammer and hit my finger or I do something and it'll be painful and i'll you know something will come out of my mouth but he knows that i'm not you know if, if i'm swearing i'm swearing at the universe 
but not at anyone in particular. Mm -hmm. And and so and, and I think there's that uh, there's that pattern that's starting to emerge uh, between us is we always model what we what we teach. What at we least teach. we try. <laughs> or at least we try. Yeah. And then and this also means that when we do something different, he will often notice. Mm -hmm. He will say, "You're normally you never do this thing." And he'll ask us about it and in a way call us out on, on, on a different behavior than what we've been teaching him, which is actually the building block of, of, give, of, of offering feedback to other people, which is very useful. And I think I, even though he's a child, he's incredibly curious and incredibly observant. And for us to be able to respond by saying, oh, you're right. Dab, I didn't, you know, I didn't do this right. Or this was a fail or, uh, or I could do better next time kind of allows him to, uh, to believe, uh, to, it gives him the confidence to actually give us more feedback mm -hmm. because we respect it. Um, the last piece on swearing is for him to notice that there's a, a right time and a right place. And we went through this and I said, okay, so mm -hmm. you, you, know, you said a swear word, um, you know, what about in front of grandma and papa? And it was like, no. What about in front of your teachers? No. What about, you know, all your friends? And it was like, yeah, most friends would be okay. But again, not swearing at that friend, but an appropriate use of swear words around that person mm -hmm. and um, making sure that that feels okay. I think there's a building block around if you swear or if you use these words, how will that affect other people? We, we haven't talked about it specifically in those terms, but uh, it's, a, it's just a building of awareness of uh, actions and words and how they affect other people. Oh, and one last thing, too, is that he is certainly at, at one point, he said, Mama, can you tell me all the swear words? And I said, well, you know, first of all, I don't know all the swear words. But secondly, I said, you know, if you hear something and you want to know, then just come and ask me. And so I am more in the like need to know basis. So, um, and then when he pulled out the, the fucky pants, I thought I had never actually heard that in my entire life. So clearly I don't know all the swear words, but I'm, I am totally happy to give him um, kind of an age appropriate definition for the swear word as, as best I can. And um, I don't need to go into major details about the F word and how it's a, a verb and a noun and an adjective and an adverb. But uh, he, he'll see it, he'll hear it, and he gets to have his own joy of discovery around swearing, which is super fun and, and naughty. And kind of naughty. It is totally <laughs> naughty. And so I, part of me, I don't want to take that away from him. I, I want him to discover that as well. Yeah. But in general, we don't really uh, do, we never do name calling, no. and we don't really do swear words. So it's not, not very active right. in, uh, um, in, our, uh, in, in our family. Yeah. Playfulness versus acting out. We have definitely, there have been times when Phoenix has gotten extremely playful and silly and sometimes, sometimes it's at bedtime. Um, what I have noticed at bedtime is that sometimes Phoenix will get very playful and very silly and there are moments when it might occur as acting out. But a question I've been asking more recently is, are you doing that because you want me to play with you? And his answer is usually yes. And so instead of immediately judging and shutting down the playfulness and the silliness, mm -hmm. actually asking the question about what he wants and needs, I find super helpful. It doesn't mean that we're actually gonna play with him, but knowing that what, what, what he wants turns it from something that's bad behavior 
to just very normal kid behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that has been really, really helpful for us. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, sometimes he is acting out, and there's many different reasons for that. It could be acting out because he's, quote-unquote, hangry. He's, uh, he's hungry, and then, and then that affects his mood. Uh, in some cases, there's a need that he doesn't know how to express, um, and we don't know what it is, and so he's acting out because something's happening inside of him. And so for us to slow down and just say, okay, what's really going on right now? Or maybe it would be good if you ate a bite of something. Or maybe it would be good if we uh, if we slow down and, and kind of feel into what's going on inside mm -hmm. of you so you can figure it out. And again, that's the building block of greater awareness. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also noticing that we call the presentation eight tools. But in this case, some of the tools are just perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so they're not necessarily a tool like a hammer, but it's just a way of looking at things that uh, facilitates parenting. Or it could just be a, a question, mm -hmm. because kids kids have reasons for things. Mm -hmm. um, the reasons don't always make sense to us, but they usually make sense to the kid. They have their own kid logic. Yeah, and I think some of it is about trusting um, that even in their limited fashion, children are are inherently good and they're inherently trying to do the best they can, just like everybody yeah, else. Totally. All right. Listening, connecting, and empathizing. So that go that's everything we just said kind of dovetails into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, you know, I have definitely had the kid who's in the middle of the store melting down about a toy. And um, I have also learned that it's really key to just sit down and really listen. I've heard an earful on like how transformers are incredibly awesome. I've connected with Phoenix around that. I've empathized with them because Transformers are actually really cool. And, um, and it's made a world of difference because when he feels connected to me and he knows I really heard him, then we can move on to whatever the next thing is, which could mean you know, setting a boundary and keeping a boundary. It could mean moving on to something else. But as long as he feels really heard and listened to, um, it feels like almost anything is possible after that. As long as he's not hungry and tired. Right. And <laughs> um, in in here, but in, in this particular piece, um, what I think is important is, is to support the child in, in, in getting more, going more deeply into what's going on in their heart and what's going on in their body. And you can actually ask questions directly to the child. Like, okay, well, how's your body feeling right now? You know, is your body feeling hungry or is it feeling tired or is it feeling, is there any pain anywhere or tension anywhere? Uh, and that's where like giving, you know, giving like very light massage to your child can be really useful because they can say, oh, I feel tension here or I feel tension there. This brings more awareness to what's going on inside of their body. And same thing for their heart. It's important to not just say, do you feel good, do you not feel good, but to actually start to use more complex vocabulary uh, that expresses the internal feeling that might be that might be present. Uh, you know, do you feel do you feel sad? Do you feel happy? Do you feel angry? So you use the the, the basic the basic emotion words, but then you can go a little bit a little bit more deeply, like disappointed, like uh, curious, um, like confused, and uh, and just to see if your child gets it. If they don't get it, then you can go into like what does that mean? And um, and in some cases. And I've seen you do this, my, my lovely one. Uh, I've seen you uh, throw words at him around how he might be feeling. Like when, it, when there's, a, there's clearly an upset 
and he doesn't really know how he feels. I've seen you just say things like, well, do you feel disappointed or do you feel upset or do you feel, um, or do you feel um, left alone, you do feel lonely or, so there's to be able to use these words as actually beginning to teach them what these when these words might be useful. And also um, not if he's not sad, then, you know, he's not sad. I, I, we definitely saw somebody at a festival we went to and the, there were two kids and one, I think, had hit the other. And then the father was saying to one of them, oh, you're sad. You're sad. And you know what? That kid was not sad. That kid was angry. Yes. So um, so. A, it's that balance of giving vocabulary around emotions, mm -hmm. but also recognizing, you know, if Phoenix isn't feeling sad, that that's okay. I'm not going to insist that he feels sad. Mm -hmm. um, but I do really try and observe him and name what I'm seeing. And hopefully that connects with how he's actually feeling. Mm -hmm. So it is that balance of, huh, it seems like, you know, you're, you're angry or you're upset um, as opposed to, no, you are you're sad. And it was, again, this example we saw, I, I didn't say anything, but you know, that kid, man, he just wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to, he was so angry. Yeah. Um, he was not on the verge of tears. He was, you know, and so I wasn't sure. I know that the, the father was actually and generally doing a great job, but that was just that moment where I thought, yeah, you know, the kid is still in that space. He's nothing is shifting. And I find that when you name something that the child really resonates with, there is this um, surrender into that emotion. Mm -hmm. Like they're finally like, oh, you see me, you get me. Yeah, like I'm not alone. There are definite connection in that. Mm -hmm. And if there are moments where I say, you know, I, I totally get it. There, you know, that toys, sometimes there are things that I want as well. And if I have a memory from childhood, sometimes I'll say it, although I'm really careful not to dominate the like, well, when I was a child, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, so it is that, that balance of really listening and connecting. If I have a very short story where I can empathize and it's appropriate, then I will add that in. Mm -hmm. But most of my attention is usually on our son. Yeah. I think it's important to say that, um, Emotional intelligence and somatic intelligence, which is about the sensations in the body and uh, using our senses to kind of gauge where we're at. Um, we do this ourselves uh, individually and we do this with each other. And so we model it not just with our child, but also with each other. So he can see us do uh, in action around it. And these are all things that will sort of sink in as memories where later on he might think, well, what would my mom say? What would my mom do? What would my dad do? Um, and these things can last a, long, a lifetime. Uh, and so that's why it's important to embody these skills and these qualities as best as we can. And if we don't, don't, don't have these skills really, uh, uh, if we're not very good at them, to actually make an extra effort to learn them. Even if it means learning them with our son and our, or, or, or daughter. All right, lying and story making. Yep, so that um, kind of, this, this one of these came out of Phoenix telling me this really tall tale about how kids at school were treating him a certain way and then they'd beat him up and he was under a bench and then sometimes the child, you know, there was two kids and sometimes seven kids, but he didn't know their names and none of the teachers saw it. And it, initially I thought, oh my God, our, our child's being bullied. But as the story kept on morphing in different directions, it realized that I didn't know where the truth was. And so um, after listening to him and empathizing with him, 
there's a certain point where I said, you know, how serious this is. Like if a child is bullying, like this is incredibly serious. They could be asked to, they could be expelled from the school and consequences, definitely consequences. And he's like, Oh, well they're leaving tomorrow. And then we got to a point where I knew that he got, I was really listening. I was empathizing with how that kind of situation would be really horrible. And then I said, is this a hundred percent truthful? Like, absolutely. And uh, what I recognize is he doesn't know percentages because he responded, no, no, it's like 74%. (laughs) And then we kind of went through there and really got that he wasn't telling the truth. The only truth is that two kids, I think, had accidentally tripped over him on the playground and they hadn't said sorry. Um, And then I went through and we talked about what an amazing storyteller he is. So my idea was that I would funnel this into a creative undertaking. Mm -hmm. And And then I said, well, what about this and that? And I questioned him about different things. And it turns out they were, they were, none of that was truthful. And I said, you know, I take you very seriously. And so, and he gets, he knows that he knows that we listen and I, it's a lot harder for us to really take him seriously when he's telling stories. Mm -hmm. So that was one piece. There is also very age appropriate lying, um, which is when they're really young, they don't really necessarily know the difference between truth and story. There's a lot of blurring. Mm -hmm. And so that's another piece of it too. Um, one thing I want to add is, uh, in a, and I've been in conversation with Phoenix about this, where it looked like he was lying. Like, did you watch some videos yesterday? And he would say no, but I knew that he had. And I said to him, if you tell me something and it turns out it's not true, one day you will tell me something that is true and I will not believe you. And, and it will be, it might be something that's really important to you. But if I don't trust that everything you tell me is true, then then I will start to not believe you. When, even when you're telling me things that are true, that is very important to you. So it's much better to stick with the truth, and it's much better to uh, to create trust that way because it means that our relationship is much more solid. And he got that. He and from that point on, and whenever he whenever he tells the truth, or as far as I can tell, he does. Um, I thank him for that. Like, thank you for telling me how many videos you watched yesterday. And thank you for telling me the truth. Tell, thank you for letting me know that you ate some, can, some candy yesterday. Because that creates more trust. And then we get to, we get to engage well from that point on. All right. Last one. Um, internal versus external motivation. And this, the internal motivation is something that is um, originated by the child, whereas external motivation is originated by the adult. And, um, you know, I actually got part of this when I was watching many years ago, a Dr. Phil show. And there was a parent, a very helicopter parent who was all over her kids about doing well in softball and other things. And she was the one driving the entire thing. And Dr. Phil's point at the time was, if you were always externally motivating your kids, they never find it within themselves to actually internally motivate. So along those lines, um, for example, around activities, I know there are parents who they're like, oh, my child is going to play a musical instrument. They're going to do this and that and that and that. And we definitely offer that to Phoenix, but we're also trying to find that balance of saying, oh, you've never done this before. Let's, let's have you really try something mm-hmm. and find some internal motivation around trying something, perhaps failing and doing that. Mm-hmm. 
And then there are other things like uh, he does martial arts and that's because he really wanted to do it. And when it came time for him to step up into like the big kids class, he was going to be going twice a week, not once a week. And it was a bigger financial commitment for us. And both of us, we had this conversation of, is this what you really want to do? Because turning around and saying, oh, I just don't feel like going like that. That's not going to work for us. Mm -hmm. So we wanted him to find that something within himself that's going to keep him going, even when he has moments of really not wanting to go. And so far, he actually hasn't had any of those moments. Mm -hmm. But it's really fun to watch him um, pursue this. He just got his yellow belt. That's a whole lot of fun. And to see that he really loves doing this and he's working hard and it comes from him. There's also, um, um, that also goes into um, consent. Uh, we basically engage, engage with him around the things that he truly wants and respects him and we respect him for uh, his choices. Even if he, he changed it, even if he changed his mind at some point, we would say, okay, well, you had said you were gonna stick with it, you did not. And let's just pay attention to that. So that next time when you decide you're going to do something, then you can you can really feel into what your what your true preference is. And I would also say this is not just a um, hundred percent kid led situation, because I think it's you know as adults and the fact that we do have more experience, there are things that we want him to experience and try. Um, we're not there to twist his arm, but at the same time. You know, it may be that it's just unfamiliar, so he doesn't want to do it because he's scared. And so there's a place to actually step into that and really give it a try, not just lip service. There's actually very little that will force him to do. Um, we might we might be very uh, um, we might desire him for, for for him to do something like very very strongly, uh, but other than for safety reasons, it's very rare that we're going to force him to do something that he doesn't want to do. And again, that goes back to uh, respecting him for his choice mm -hmm. uh, so that he respects us <coughs> for our choice or anybody else that he engages with. All right, one little bonus bit. Yep. Um, what, ha <laughs> what happens when we disagree? Yeah, totally, because it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> if it hasn't happened already, it will happen. And um, we generally, Philippe and I find that we are actually very well aligned. We have remarkably similar childhoods with remarkably similar values around how we were raised. Um, but there are moments when we don't agree around things like scheduling or um, bedtime. <laughs> or eating habits. Yeah, generally, again, pretty good. But there, are, there are, have been one or two crunchy moments, I would say. So I think I, I think when we when these things happen, sometimes they happen right in front of him. Like we have differing opinions around what he should eat or how much of it or if he should watch videos, and so he gets to actually see in real time how we how we and and we basically get to model for him what happens when we disagree around something, and um, and it's not always pretty. Sometimes it's intense. Sometimes well, we never swear at each other, never call name call each other. But sometimes we we're very strongly disagree, and uh, and we model holding two truths being valid at the same time, mm -hmm. which in some cases might mean that we don't know what to do, <laughs> and so and we have to let it go until we have more conversations. Mm -hmm. And this kind of sh this shows him too that sometimes we can't. There's no solution, or you have, we have to go with one and not the other, even though one person will be less happy, but because something has to be done in this particular case. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so all of it is about modeling disagreement 
without uh, without hurting each other uh, and while respecting each other along the way. Yeah. All right. We love to support other parents. Mm -hmm. And so Pageant and I uh, coach uh, other couples mm -hmm. uh, together, uh, both around parenting and also around relationships. Because uh, let's just admit it, they all go together. Yes. Uh, and so if this is something that you're interested in, we'd be happy to support you. Um, otherwise, you can check out each other's website, um, exquisite.love for Philippe's, for me, and for Paget, pagetnorton.com, uh, where she um, um, has a lot of her articles published. Mm -hmm. But there's also other parenting sites uh, where she has her uh, articles published, mm -hmm. and we'll make sure to have a list um, on the, um, uh, the Thinkific mm -hmm. uh, website. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. All right. It's been a pleasure sharing our different tools with you. And I know there are more, but these yeah. are some really good ones that we've discovered and yeah. honed over time. Yeah, these are the gems. But if you uh, if you go look at the uh, Paget's articles, uh, mm -hmm. they uh, we uh, she goes into uh, some of them a little bit more deeply. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Philip and Paget. That was amazing. I really like the eight tools that you mentioned like the a perspective or goodies that well parents can um, really be more in tune with them and I love that you really went above and beyond of <laughs> uh, bringing the aspect of swearing and matching energy in the room so I have a couple of questions from parent to parent um, <laughs> when it comes to matching the room that's the first one matching the energy of the room how can we help our kids to walk into a room, be <coughs> able to be themselves and authentic with who they truly are, while at the same time they are matching the room? Because sometimes it may seem like, well, if we go to a, an area, um, a place or an activity that is way too slow, way too high, and their own personality does not even match that. So how can we help them to be authentic with who they are while at the same time the energy, they can flow with the energy better? Well, I think one is finding kid-appropriate activities and events. Um, a friend of mine recently invited me in Phoenix to join him and a group of adults at a brunch. And I said, okay, are there going to be other kids there? No. All right, it's going to be a bunch of adults sitting around a table for two hours having brunch. And, um, and I thought, well, I could bring Phoenix, but honestly, I think it's going to be really boring for him. Hmm. And I think in that situation um, that I would be setting himself up, setting him up for failure, actually, at his age to expect him to come and hang out in a two-hour brunch with a group of adults he doesn't know. And um, there's no kid play area. So I think part of it is really assessing where you're going to take a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, is it a playground? Is it a play? Is it a movie? You know, in a kid-friendly movie, then that would be more appropriate. Um, at a wedding, which is pretty quiet during the ceremony, then again, there are things that are totally appropriate. If you have a child who tends to be really boisterous and very physical, then again, I think you need to assess the situation. Um, there might be a place to you know, take your kid like a kid play area that would work a lot better. Um, when they're really young, they, I mean, they have a harder time controlling their emotions and their bodies. And so I think that it's up to the parent to actually assess mm. 
the situation before going in as opposed to saying, wow, my three-year-old is not able to match the energy or my five-year-old who actually needs a lot of physical activity can't match the energy. Like it's not your kid's problem, you know? Yeah. It's something that you really need to take into consideration so they can be authentic. And finding the right places to bring your kid. Like um, over here we have ecstatic dance. It's very kid friendly. There's a kid area and there's an adult area and that's totally a place for a kid to run around. Yeah, I think uh, I think what happens is that the younger the child, the less range they have around matching the energy. Totally. As they get older, they have more tools. They have more availability. They they know themselves better. They know the kind of things they can do and give in any mm -hmm. given situation. So that range um, goes up or get, gets wider. And so I think the role of the parent is to um, is to set them up for success so that they have the experience of matching the energy in a context that they can work with. And so don't take your child to something that they can't handle or bring the toys or bring the video or bring whatever it is that, uh, or at least at least uh, engage with them around what's gonna be, what's coming up. So mm -hmm. then it's not a big surprise. We're going to a wedding, you're gonna have to be quiet. What do you think you would like to do uh, during that time? Mm -hmm. And maybe they have answers or maybe they don't, but at least mm -hmm. they start, they begin to think about it. Mm -hmm. So that can also work with family event um, that we can ask them like how can we interact with you during those, for example, holidays or events and, and parties. And be ready for them to say, I want to watch more videos or I want to play more games. And so and so they, there's gonna there's gonna be times like this where they're just gonna want the, you know, candies, video games or whatever it is. And and to encourage them to use their own imagination in some case. Mm -hmm. But don't throw them off the deep end. If you do that, then you know it's it's failure for them, it's failure for you, it's stressful for it's stress stressful for everyone. So it's a team effort. And how we do this with uh, teachers when the kid go to school? When, for example, a lot of parents are putting their kid at a very young age, three, four, five years old, into already uh, facilities, a school, pre-K, at a very young age, and the energy of the teachers themselves does not match the kid and the kids don't match with the teachers and they have a conflict. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you have, <clears throat> when you have talented teachers that they're able to work with all kinds of kids and these days they, um, I mean, it, I've seen it at my son's school that there are kids who are definitely more high energy and the way that they run the school is that there are opportunities for kids to get up and move around and move some of that energy. They also have um, kind of disco seats and wiggle seats. They, so they can get the, the kids can kind of get the wiggles out. Um, I think if it's an environment where it tends to be even young at five, kindergarten, I've seen very kind of academic kindergartens um, that if you can assess whether or not that's the right place for your kid, you know, that that's really important. Yeah, sometimes there's a mismatch, you know? Um, yeah, but I, I would hope that the teachers have large enough toolboxes to work with a variety of kids. Beautiful. So let's talk about consent. And I know this is our favorite topic of Philip's. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love to read, uh, if you haven't followed Philip on Facebook, I love to read this man because it's like he really shared from his heart but also at the same time to make everybody think <laughs> so um so we are raising a kid a community of us uh, raising conscious 
our children and we're sharing with them these tools of consent and I love what you actually said about consent is permission plus connection not just permission so I love I love that you integrated that it's beautiful um, so when we go back to other people's dynamic you know people you know maybe the parents that they're not living together blended families our uncles grandmothers and even the teachers how can we help our kids to still honor their uh, yeses and no and their boundaries when other people are not, they don't have these skills, they don't have this tool, they don't even have this awareness, they don't have this consciousness. How can we help them to not feel isolated and feel traumatized at one point? Um, I think it goes, it goes back to the team effort. I mean, you're, you and your child are a team, and you're it, sort of facing the world. And the world, especially in conscious parenting, the world is a very different place. Uh, you know, there's 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 other cultures of how to either how to do parenting, how to raise children, how to raise boys, uh, how to raise girls. There's all of these things that are outside of the family unit, and in uh, and, and I think it's, again, it's important to be a team with your child to let them know that not everybody thinks the same way, not everybody will do consent well. And uh, and teaching them and teaching them like what to do when somebody doesn't ask, uh, or when or or when play doesn't pan out the way the way they want. Uh, and so we've told we've told Phoenix like if if something doesn't work out the way you want it, well make a request. If that request doesn't work out, you can come to an adult and ask for help. Uh, not because we're going to punish people, but because we're just going to be a team with you and try to figure it out. Uh, and he often comes to us saying, oh I. Uh, you know, this is what's going on with these other kids, and uh, I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how to. And that happened recently at a festival. Like he was trying to figure out how to play with them, while they were not always listening to his consent. Um, and and another piece, uh, I think that's a, that's important is to uh, um, is to is for the child to walk away when things don't work out. It's okay to walk away. There's, it, it's not always possible to figure it out. And in the meantime, instead of being upset about it, uh, to uh, to actually be willing to disengage, go somewhere I, else. I also think, I mean, because you're talking about things like blended families, different cultures, that I have definitely heard people say, oh, well, no, but it's, it's their grandparents. They have to be affectionate. Hmm. You know, it's part of the family. You have to do that because they would be really offended. And I think what we're talking about here is parents willing to engage in something that might be a little risky. Mm. And that risky piece is actually educating their the rest of the family or the adults around about how they're going to be engaging with their child in a different way. Right. And along with that, I mean, it's something like 30 to 40% of all child abuse happens from close family members and friends, right? It's a huge number. And I think that family members and close friends need to know that they need to have a sense of like how you're actually setting up your child for the future. And they also need to get that it's not personal, right? Mm. A child saying no to a hug or kiss is not personal. Yeah. Insisting that your child either high five or, or say hello and goodbye, I think is appropriate, but giving your child autonomy over their bodies, I think is really key. And I, um, 
I think very gently educating other people around that is really important because people can be so entrenched in their viewpoints. Like, no, this is how we do it. And you always give your uncle a kiss and you always sit in your <laughs> uncle's lap, right? And they're kids who don't want to for whatever reason. Sometimes yeah. they have no reason. They just don't want to. Yeah. And so it's a re-education process that honestly might hurt some feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you, you know, parents need to decide like what kind of stand they're going to take. And for us, our stand is that it's really important that our son have autonomy over his body, that it's important for me to have autonomy over my body when my son, when I was nursing and he was old enough to ask to nurse, mm -hmm. that, um, that he didn't just grab, that he asked. And even now he's, he's very fascinated by breasts, especially mine. And say, he'll say, oh, can I touch your breast? And it's like, yeah, you know what? No, I'm not up for it. There's no charge around it. I'm just, I just, that's just not what I want. But if you'd like a hug, I can totally give that to you. And so we are modeling that for him and really trying to set him up for the future when he's interacting with other people around their bodies. Yeah, interacting with, I mean, whoever he is interacting with, mm -hmm. right? And then also receiving touch for his body because I think that there's, a whole host of other issues that that boys and men deal with around touch and receiving touch mm -hmm. that that um, have some intersection of and have some difference with what girls and women um, have so uh, it could be that you are trying to change the culture of your family and what's around you and it is a large undertaking mm -hmm. so I whoever's doing that I applaud you and <laughs> just <laughs> notice that it can be an incredibly courageous and edgy act to take that on and should be told if I say you know when he's going to bed and and I say would you like to give me a hug and a kiss and he says no it's hard <laughs> it gets it's still hard uh, but at the right. same time I am modeling what it's like when it's hard for me but I'm not making him wrong right totally or 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 when it's not when it's hard but I'm okay with it I'll just say oh that's hard but I'm okay with it. That's you know. Thank you for saying no. Yeah. And thank you yeah. for asking for what you, for saying what you need and yeah. and and respecting him for that. Yeah. Beautiful. And I have a last question. When we come to talk about the internal motivation and the external mm -hmm. motivation, um, it's beautiful to see when the kids are in that internal motivation. So, how can we help a kid who they have so much internal motivation? And at the same time, they are dealing with people who are authoritarian. Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, I think it's where the internal motivation is driving them. I mean, are they, they're in the middle of the classroom and they're supposed to do one activity, but they're internally motivated to do another thing. Um, so I'm not sure if that's, part of the question that that this is the, the kind of strong-willed child who wants to do something um, and not follow kind of what's going on in the classroom or what the parents want is that is that part of your question yeah it could be it could be we have a we have in society we have we here in and and working with so many mom groups I have heard that the kid have these motivation they, they decide to do that's what sometimes people bring them to Waldorf school, Montessori school, because we know that in the school system itself, of the public school, they cannot really be in the authentic self. But when they go to other activities, other schools, other philosophies, they it seems like there's a flexibility in there, but it's still 
um, they're still feeling that their whole uh, motivation is not being um, honored, is not being respected. And they have to deal with authoritarian people, meaning that very, very strict when it comes to like mm -hmm. what it must be done. And they just, they don't have the skills to inform the child or to connect with the child because we know as parents that a lot of kids, even that, that they ex decide to express their the motivation, internal motivation, that they want to share themselves and be themselves, um, they always want connections. So if the person that they're dealing with is very authoritarian and is, they have not have the tools to address, you know, whatever needs to be done, um, we hear and, and we see a lot of kids get very emotionally repressed because at home they feel safe, but when they go out and they have to deal with these people, teachers, other parents, or other families members, um, they just, they just, they just feel isolated. I, I can add a, a quick thing is, uh, and it's something I've mentioned a few times is the idea of teamwork, and uh, teamwork can look like working with people who just, who are just not very flexible. Uh, and and trying to do to make the best of it and uh, and so I mean we we try to work with Phoenix uh, and engage with him in a way that that makes him that makes him feel like his his opinion and his consent is respected but that doesn't always work and so when we're having conversation with him especially in crunchy moments in the outside in the rest of the, in in the out there in the world with friends or with other people uh, we we're trying to uh, to instill in him. Uh, the uh, curiosity around like well what in this situation what can you do to kind of make it work uh, as best as you can mm -hmm. and so teamwork yeah I mean I you're it's also that um, you're talking about some very different models right there are definitely schooling models that are very child-driven and there are schooling models that are very adult-driven and um, I mean, if some parents really want their kids to be in very structured, adult-driven environments, and other parents want their kids to be in very kind of child-led, child-driven environments. And I think that the teamwork actually spills over into um, a situation where they're perhaps in an educational institution that's very adult-driven. And the question is, like, how can you, how can parents team with team up with those teachers to create environments where children do have some choice because there are definitely public school systems where there are a lot of children in the classroom and the adult in there is just trying to get kids to do things um, yeah i think that there's also you know a balance of saying okay i mean we've had it with phoenix where he's um I mean, there are a number of child-led activities at his school, and some of them are adult-led. And he comes home, and he needs some completely free time where he can do what he wants. And so it's that conversation of, all right, at school, you're doing what the adults want. But when you come home, how can we create an environment where you get to do what you want? I think it's useful for kids to actually know how to operate in, in both of those environments or whatever that spectrum is, right? So they know, oh yeah, when Phoenix is in martial arts, they are very strict. You know, when he's at home, we want him to have, there are times when we want him to have more freedom to follow what he wants. 
you know, at school, there's a, there's a balance of that. So how can my child be adaptable to different environments? Mm -hmm. yeah. How can he find interest in activities that are seemingly boring? You know, I, I remember that in all of my schooling or writing papers, you know, that it, the topic didn't necessarily occur as interesting at all. But if I could find some kind of hook, then it would immediately become more interesting. So I think a, a lot of it has to do with being in conversation with the child around uh, what are his experiences, what, 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 when were times where he felt like he didn't have as much choice with, uh, with other adults or in particular uh, situations out there in the world and supporting, uh, supporting an inquiry and exploration around like, well, what else can happen? What can he do? How can we support him? And, uh, and if there are situations where he doesn't have choice, um, well, is, can he see the benefit? Is there, like with martial arts, there's a benefit to the discipline that comes along with not having the choice. Can he see that or does he feel like that's a bummer regardless? And so, so there's a growth process and an exploration that can lead to better solutions. And I think too, you know, depending on your child's personality that some kids really thrive in a very open mm. environment. And I know that a friend of mine went to a private school where it was very open and he actually needed it to be a lot more adult led. So he did better when he had an adult that was closer to him telling him what to do. Mm -hmm. And um, his parents originally thought, oh yeah, he just needs all the freedom. He didn't actually need that. So I think it's knowing your child and trying to figure out what, if it's possible to choose the learning environment you know, for your child. Beautiful, thank you so much. Yeah. Um teamwork and conversations and being more conscious yep amazing thank you guys for for sharing your goodies your your wisdom with us in this summit you're welcome you're welcome pleasure yeah and how can we find you again uh, my website is uh, www.exquisite.love and i'm www.pagetnorton.com and you can reach each of each or both of us um, if you're uh, seeking support in your parenting or in your relationship. Yeah, and you also find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Facebook. Oh yeah, um, I I really enjoy posting a lot of uh, both controversial and and interesting inquiries around relationships, intimacy, mm -hmm. connection, sensuality, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and having said that, uh, when we coach together, there's a big advantage is that our sort of like our radar is much wider. Yeah. Uh, than if it's just one person coaching. Yeah. So uh, we often bring a lot more to the table uh, than a single coach. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. guys. Thank you again. So yeah. thank you, our amazing community, for joining us today to another amazing episode of the Conscious Relationship Uncoupling and Parenting Summit. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks.